let's put this way um i'm i'm a sissy did your wife say it was okay for you to have something sharp no i gotta sneak oh. it out yes that's yes, right yeah. i've had that forever well, I've got, uh, since you guys are carrying on about your, your panel line washes, I've stepped up and uh, started drinking the glue. Oh! Do you spend all your time on Cricket's how-to site? You're the leader. Okay. Yeah, hopefully we didn't burn up all our good content already. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're listening to The Crossing Gate, the official podcast of the Twin Cities Division of the National Model Railroad Association. The topics and discussions are about the world's greatest hobby, model railroading. Here are your hosts, Thomas Gazier and Ken Zeska. This episode of The Crossing Gate is sponsored by the Model Railroading Bus. No. Not the incredible model made by our friends in Canada. This is the bus that has huge tires and makes a stop at everyone's layout. Yes, this is the bus that you always throw yourself under. Visitors come on a layout tour and compliment your depot. Operations night crew says nice things about your new industry. The club meeting crew gushes over your latest show and tell project. Well, that's all fine and good if you could just learn to take a compliment. But no, the bus revs its engine and you are already at the stop with correct change in hand. You have to admit that the depot is the wrong shade of SP yellow. You must confess that the track is code 100 instead of code 70 at that new spur. You profess your lack of details compared to the prototype on that passenger car you kitbashed. Yes, you just love throwing yourself under the bus. Would any of your operators notice the difference? Probably not. Would the casual visitor actually know the correct color for Big Sky Blue, let alone Penn Central Black? No. Would any of us point out your errors? Probably doesn't say not here. You, so you would point out errors? Sheesh, you have a lot of jerks in this hobby. You just have to cleanse your soul and confess that the depot is three feet too short, the GP7 is actually a GP9, and that this railroad never had 70-ton coal hoppers with semi-peaked ends and six ribs. Is this an actual thing? It, it is? Really? Huh. The bus waits for no one and is always on time. On time for you to push yourself off the curb and under those wheels. So you'd better learn to say thank you and move on, or the bus will continue to roll. Those wheels on the bus go round and round. Round to the next layout, that is. Model Railroading Bus is a division of Gruesome Casket Company, LLC. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Crossing Gate Podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Joe Binish. Good evening. William Sampson. Hello, everybody. And Mike Jordan. Hello. And we're going to talk about what's on our workbench and also logistics. And by logistics, I mean, how do you move a project from A to Z? And Joe, you've always got something on your workbench, so we'll throw it out to you first. Okay. I should have another pair of Babyface A units on the Anthracite Railroad Historical Society uh, made a shell 
a year or so ago. And so I had finished one set. The guy who lives in Washington State wants me to do a set, but I got a shiny object in the uh, mail on Monday. And so it's a C415 from Pacific Northwest Resins. I'm on, I primed it today. So I have to see what I did wrong and what I can fix. And then uh, hopefully get some wheel sets and some and a motor next week and build a drive for it and then go that way, see what happens. So what is a baby face? It's the Baldwin before they came out with the shark noses. They had a, a cab unit. Think F7, but much uglier. Okay, so it's a DeBaldwin diesel, and that's for what yeah. railroad? Uh, it'll be central New Jersey. So central I did a tangerine and blue scheme, and now this one will be uh, green with uh, yellow toothpaste stripes. Oh, so now you have a 415 resin shell. Yep. What all goes into what you're doing to it? Do you have it planned out step by step? What needs to take this to completion? So it's going to be a Rock Island one. So first thing I did is when I got the shell, after I wiped the drool up off of it, went on the internet and looked at pictures of Rock Island C415s and, oh, I've got to take that window off and I've got to build the little brake gear, the handbrake. I don't really write things down and plan them that way. I just go through and look at pictures and, okay, I've got that done. I've got that done. Oh, shoot, I need to do this. And Half the time, I forget something. All right. And then we'll go to you, William. What's on your workbench here, post-modeler's retreat? Well, I've got a variety of things sitting here. I, I do like working on vehicles. So I do have, it's a Burkina K100 Kenworth uh, semi-truck that I have gone through and I'm upgrading just by blackening the holes in the wheels to give it a little bit more detail, putting on some whip antennas and, and kind of dolling it up a little bit. It's really good right out of the box. So there's not a whole lot that you need to do to it. But it is a nice little truck to be able to have on the railroad. Um, it's era kind of specific. Anybody that's not familiar with the Kenworth, it's one of those flat nose type trucks. Some call them a cab over where the engine's actually kind of in the center and the driver is more or less almost sitting on top of it. Uh, but on the locomotive side of things, I have worked on a couple of units. One of them, I'm blowing apart another SW1200. This one's not because Dullcoat was sprayed on it. This one is actually <laughs> a fellow modeler that had asked if I would uh, be willing to turn it into um, a Lake Superior terminal uh, SW1200. So oh, nice. I, I just basically demonstrate clearing off the letters. How do you strip that off? Um, I did a little YouTube blurb on it, not really diving deep into it, but I like super clean. If you've ever used super clean, the automotive uh, degreaser, it, it works really well in terms of removing lettering from our modern day freight cars. And I just take a little piece of paper towel and lay it over the area that I want to do that. And I dab the super clean on top of it. So it kind of soaks and saturates it. So I took a great Northern already painted Rapido locomotive and then slowly went through that process, removed the logo, <laughs> took off the numbers. And now Joe is working on his, you know, C415. And what I didn't realize, I saw pictures of it that he posted online and I thought it was glue slopped all over it. I'm grateful, Joe, that you pointed out that it was your drool. And that'll come off. Oh, I appreciate you at least at least letting us know that that shell hadn't gotten trashed, and it was just you admiring the resin piece that yes. you started working yeah. on. Joe needs some super clean. So, w William, where can we find super clean? At what type of store and what? Department? So it's at it's at big box stores. I bought it at Walmart. Uh, Walmart has it in the automotive department, so it's okay. back in automotive, and it's a purple container. They got it in a little hand spray version. I bought a one gallon or a gallon and a half, which is more than you'll ever need. I, any of you guys that need it, if you're in the Twin <laughs> Cities and you know me, you can hit me up and I'll give you a little shot of it. Uh, and it'll last you a long time because uh, a bottle that we normally have like 10X, a little glue bottle, 
it's about that size and you it's more than you'll ever need. So it's it's great for removing letters uh, and it's inexpensive. I think uh, the gallon costs like a buck. You might be able to get the other stuff for, you know, three, four bucks. So what's the active ingredient? Is it just mostly alcohol because it's a cleaner, but it's a less intense than like rubbing right. alcohol? It, it, I, I'm not exactly sure if what's in the, it makes your fingers slippery. So I do wear gloves. <laughs> so whatever's in it is not good to have on your skin. But as far as an active ingredient, it's either alcohol or it's some sort of abrasive, but it does not eat at the actual original paint. So your base color in this case, the uh, Pullman green and Omaha orange, neither one of those get affected, but I do want to stay away from the stripes because the stripes are like the lettering Great Northern. And that's why I use a little piece of um, paper towel that I cut to the shape of the word Great Northern and the logo. And then I just lay that stuff on. I use a Q-tip and I just lightly dab it to get it soaked and let it sit there. And then I come back just with a uh, toothpick and I lightly just massage it and it'll lift that logo off and you can't even tell that it had a Great Northern or the Herald on it. And now I've laid the decals on it for the uh, Lake Superior Terminal. So we could do that to all of the Great Northern locomotives and they wouldn't have that silly goat. And <laughs> yes, the that's on. right. <laughs> oh, the first shots are fired here. <laughs> well, does that would work really good for renumbering cars. Yes, that's what yeah. I, we primarily started using right. that with was just to change reporting marks or change a car number. It works out really well just because in Paul Becker uh, of Becker's Hobbies here in the Twin Cities is the one that told me about his use of the paper towel and it works great. I was just putting a little amount on, I dab it and just let it sit there in a little pool and eventually it's going to evaporate on you. But you could walk away for a half hour and it's not attacking the base color. So then you come back later and you can address the issue of just getting that lettering removed. But good point, Mike. It's a great way to be able to change some lettering. Now, how about you? Have you worked on anything lately? Well, after the models retreat, I, I'm still recuperating. <laughs> but I've got two covered hoppers that have been on my railroad for about 10, 15 years. You know, I decaled them all up and weathered them. The trucks don't function very well. And it was just like one of those things that you realize your skills when you did that first one versus what I can do now are better. So when I put them on the railroad, they really stand out. I took them off the railroad and I'm going to pull the decals off and actually clean up the weathering because the weathering is a little heavy handed. You know, I modeled a 1955. Cars were new in 55 and I weathered them like it was 1980. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, a light touch, Mike. Yeah. So I got to <laughs> go back to that light touch and I, I got to figure out how to pull those decals off. I'm hoping I can just soak them with water and they'll come up. But, well, reverse weathering is a good point because that's a lot of, I mean, I'm guilty of it as well. Like you said, 30 years of weathering and you really only maybe needed three, but to back up on your own model, I think, I mean, I've used that super clean to actually back off weathering too. We've bought cars at shows that somebody overweathered it. And it's, it's one of those type of things that you just got to tread lightly, slowly start to pull it back. And when you're pulling enough off and in your case, you're removing some of the lettering. So it might be a beneficial thing to just basically almost, almost strip it, but maybe you don't want to quite go that far. A question to you, you mentioned the trucks. What did you do to get the trucks to function better? I haven't yet. I just know that they don't function the way I want them to. Okay. And uh, when I started looking at it, what I'm going to have to do is over drill the screw hole, put something in it, and then center up the screw hole and level it off so the car sits plumb to the trucks. 
Okay, know? so you have you're having an, a bolt a bolster issue. That that's correct. Yeah. Again, that goes back to when I did it. That was my skill level, and now my skill level is different. So now I'm instead of just sticking with updating my buildings. Now I'm you know if I bring people over to operate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I like that philosophy. I always like the worst to first philosophy. I learned that from my friend Greg Condon in Eau Claire. He talked about James Hill always wanted to take whatever the worst thing on the Great Northern was and make it the best. Whatever our most rundown depot is, raise it and you know build a brand new one. And I think that's that's how layouts stay fresh. Is when you have the guts or the tenacity to go. That car is not running well. Let's take it off. Or that car's like you said, not looking well. Using that whatever the super clean that Williams says to remove weathering is a is a game changer. Because I I always think I'm I was very heavy handed in the early stages too. Well, part but, of it even you know, too is it gives it still that age where you pull back weathering and it leaves some stuff behind. And that stuff that you even still left behind gives it still a little bit of attitude or in the recesses that it's slightly still weathered even on top of it that. You can then come back in with maybe, like you said, Mike, your skills have improved, whether they're powders. I mean, there's stuff out there that is new, and I won't have to go down this rabbit hole. You guys will throw me under the bus when I say it. But <laughs> you, bring out the the old tamiya, you, you bring out the old Tamiya washes, and you got yourself a new lease on, on life. Of- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's hashtag not sponsored. Not yeah. sponsored. Oh, yeah. So I have a question regarding weathering like that. I've done a few things with either my Doc O'Brien's or the, um, what are the, the real fancy ones you get coming around plastic tins? I can't think of them. The pan pastels. Pan pastels. Wow, that was close. Anyway, so I dull coat everything, put that stuff on there, and then go hit it with another dull coat to seal it. And all my weathering is gone. <laughs> well, you're dull, so, you're dull coat out of a, out of a airbrush, right? Yeah, sure. And I, I mean, show of hands, I guess, Mike, Tom, you guys... Out of out, just airbrush, I no. I do now. I my I use that dull coat, that VMS varnish. And Mike, no, I I still got that feather beater six inch paintbrush. The uh, <laughs> 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 well, craftsman weathering is that it? Yeah, yeah. No. Well, as we as we recall that SW twelve hundred that uh, unfortunately my dad had frost on him using a spray bomb. Just a rattle can that was a Rust-Oleum, crystal clear, flat finish. I've sprayed about 16 cars, fingers are crossed, that I haven't had the stuff frost on me. It is a great, inexpensive way to be able to lay down. Maybe it's beginner users or like you said, Joe, how it disappears on you. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of times, and maybe you guys have different approaches, I'll even slightly over weather a little bit knowing that it's going to come back on me a little. The white, I'll put white down a little heavier knowing that it's going to get muted. And then even that dirt or grime, I'll put it on the front end of locomotives, um, put it on a little heavier. So it looks like it's, geez, that's a little bit much. But after you've laid the dull coat over it, it knocks it down. Do you guys have any other alternatives to be able to combat that erasing after you've dull coated it? So I've gone and I just do layers. Case in point is these two MNCNL cement hoppers. I, uh, I sold two of them to Hamilton and shouldn't have. So I needed a couple more cars. <laughs> I, I finally found decals and I finally found a couple of... Uh, cars so i stripped a great northern and a rio grand car and, and painted them black and put uh mncnl on them weathered them after a coat of decal wasn't enough and came back probably three or four times different coats and, and finally got it to where it's it's still pretty light they were newish cars when in my time period so 
I just do layers, like I said. Well, and Tom, what about that product you shared with me? Uh, it was a varnish. You talk about that when it's somebody custom decals something to erase those decals. I saw this in person. It looks like they lay out perfectly flat. What was the product that you used? That was VMS, Vantage Modeling Solutions Varnish. It, come, it comes in a matte satin and a gloss. And I found this once again by watching the military modelers, you know, some of the greatest painters and weatherers of modeling. This stuff is self-leveling and you can put on, you know, a couple different coats and it erases the decals. And you think, well, maybe it's going on so thick, but it's really not. It's just really nice self-leveling, gives a nice dull finish. So I like that VMS, not hashtag not sponsored, but... I'm a super, super fan of that. We'll yeah, steal, we'll steal from the second section podcast. Yeah, it's good stuff. I got, I'll let you guys borrow it. But so I want to go back to what Joe said about the layers. And I was always a fan of putting on a layer of dust, you know, panel line wash, something, acrylics, anything, and then hitting it with the dull coat, another layer of dull coat. So I could keep what I had. But I've learned from some people that they think that muddies the finish. Have you guys found that at all? I haven't. If I'm patient enough, I, I agree with you. I think but almost so many layers to too, because I do think the muddying comes in where it starts to get too thick. And if you're laying your doll coats on mm -hmm. really thick, then I think your details and everything start to kind of get lost. And that's where I think multiple layers, very light coats. I can't stress light <laughs> coats enough. And Tom knows that with spraying yellow. Yellow is a 10, right. 10 coat process. Yeah, I'm a glutton for that. But well, we've got like... uh, we've got Ken and Larry have now joined us. Uh, these guys have have entered the room. Anybody? Do you guys have any experiences with uh, Tom's question where he was asking about this by doing it in layers? It absolutely does. I do my weathering in layers. If I use dull coat, I airbrush it on, and the reason is I'll do like ten coats instead of one thick coat. You want it almost to the point where you don't even think there's any on there. Spray it a little on your hand just so you know it's coming out. And then from a distance, put that on, let it sit, dry overnight, do that again. And then if it starts disappearing, I'll layer some more weathering in it. But I have almost completely left Delco. The reason is it's a lacquer and the lacquers are harder on the weathering powders than an acrylic is. Before they quit selling Model Masters, I went to my local Hobby Lobby and bought all of the Model Master acrylics, the gloss, the satin, and the flat. That's what I prefer to use because it's, it goes on white, but it dries absolutely crystal clear. So you said and, you brush uh, it on? It or? doesn't. No, I airbrush it. Oh, airbrush. Okay. Airbrush. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's what works for me you know there's a thousand ways to do everything as we all know right so and guess what guys i don't use an arduino when i'm ready <laughs> <laughs> you do too you do i thought too. you'd have that to actuate his airbrush and arduino exactly, to actuate yeah. the airbrush use the raspberry pie <laughs> It yeah. turns the compressor on. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hey, I've got a question about your fine dull coat. Once you're weathered, how much dull coat do you need? Because all you're trying to do is put a little coat of sealing on it, right? I mean, there shouldn't be that much need for any, is there? It shouldn't be, but, you know, if once I've got the airbrush fired up, I figure I might as well use it, right? So I, okay. I may end up putting too many, too much, too heavy of a coat on is probably what my problem is. Oh, okay. Well, Joe, give us that product. Are you guys, are, what are you using that are spraying it? I know Larry mentioned his. Joe, what are you using for spraying? 
What do you mean? What, uh, what, do you, what, what, what dull coat are you, are you using? Dull I coat use by... the testers dull coat. Okay, so whatever yeah. stock is left. Yep, yeah, right. Well, they still sell. Well, okay, up until when I was in Skill Model Supplies a couple of days ago, they still had some. But I have used the stuff that Tom, that VMS stuff, not sponsored. But it's uh, that's wonderful stuff. It really works great. And that's an acrylic. Yeah, that's that's an acrylic. What do you use to clean your airbrush after that, Joe? I've been using, you know, your lacquer thinner, it seems to work. Yep, cut yeah, back. that's okay. what I, I, after every spraying session, I, I run whatever thinner I'm using to thin the paint and spray some out. I strip it down, my, my Pache VL, I strip it down to the big chunks and the, and the little tip and stuff like that and the needle. Strip those out and clean with lacquer thinner. Now, William, you mentioned you were working on this Brakina truck, a cab over. Yep. And so what era would that be? Because I know they don't have cab overs anymore. No, you're probably, you're going to if you get away with it in the late 60s, but early 70s into kind of the mid 80s, into the 90s, uh, they existed. So it's the level of wear and tear you want to have on one. Because there were guys that they're now modern day. There's some guys that are revitalizing them and bringing them back. And they just think it's cool because it's like having a retro, you know, semi. But put yourself in the late 60s into kind of that mid 80s into the 90s to get over to get away with the cab over. It's the real, real square cab, right? Yeah. Yep. Ather notoriously did one. They did a Freightliner. <laughs> that, that thing, everybody should have one. If you don't, just go to a flea market and you'll see them all over the place. So what, what I've been working on is a 40-foot, uh, all-rib side Milwaukee Road boxcar. It's a resin kit, and it's just incredibly detailed. The main body and some of the larger parts are resin cast. But when you get to the uh, ladders and the rungs, they're 3D printed. And the detail size is just incredible. I, it makes me nervous they're so incredible. You know, they're not... You could pick them up and shake them around and they don't break, which is good. I'm concerned. I'm going to wait and see what happens after six months on the railroad. But it, it is just a gorgeous car. Hey, Ken, what about the bracket grabs on the left side of the sides? Are they, uh, I'm going to show how much of a nerd I am. They were unique to those cars. Oh the boy. way the bracket grab was uh, yep. was constructed. <laughs> oh, boy. Yep. <laughs> and, it's, and it's 3D printed. Okay, cool. Excellent. So, I'm anxious to see that. So do you uh, think with all this resin or with the, the new 3D printers, is there going to be a place for resin casting still in this hobby? I think so. This guy uh, does a lot of resin casts and does a lot of patterns for other resin manufacturers. What he's done, taken the bigger parts, SLA'd them, printed them, and then made molds. But then the smaller ones that demand the higher detail, he, he 3D prints them and as as i was talking to him he says that it's going to be a mix uh, because you just can't resin cast some of the fine fine detail that uh, he can print with the 3d printers now well you so, get that hybrid a little bit even the model manufacturers yeah. that are out there now are doing the etched metal junction with the ejection molded plastic and all that stuff so is it like you said can a hybrid exactly right you are exactly right. But it's a lot of fun. You know, I, I'll get this one done. Then I'm going to put my, I've got a couple more kits like that to build, but I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to go on to something else. There's just so many things to do in the hobby. And so I just need to get on to something else and go from there. 
So next next time when we talk, Paul, I've been under the layout redoing some wiring. I've got a, a Y that needs to be. Uh, I put in frog juicers and stuff to make sure that works right, and and then I'll document some of that so I can turn it into Hamilton for for my MMR. And I, I hope you've all talked about the fact that he is now MMR number four hundred seven. Oh, he got his great, excellent. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know his number was four hundred seven. So that's pretty exciting. No, that's not his number. I think it's 704. <laughs> oh, you're right. But, but I was going to talk. Okay. We'll talk to him when he's here. You know, we can all Dyslexic. give him a brief. Speaking of NMRA, Larry, on your workbench, you have a new job or post or assignment or sentence. I don't know how you want to put it. <laughs> Why don't you tell everybody what you've accepted since I threw your name or threw you under the bus to Gordy here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Started a couple of weeks ago with this innocent little message from this guy named Gazier. <laughs> hey, we need some help. I said, well, that's a given. Uh, I forget my official title, but I am the chair for the DCC Compliance Board for the NMRA. Um, I'm part of the standards and um, standards and SNC. What is it? Standards and Compliance Group. We have a bunch of guys around the world who literally test decoders, command stations, everything, test them to see if they meet NMRA compliance, and then report to the manufacturer and give recommendations as to what the problems are. That's the encapsulated version of a 28-page dissertation. Some of the brightest guys in the, in the planet are volunteers for the NMRA doing this. And I have my first meeting with the entire team tomorrow, actually tomorrow at uh, 10 Eastern. So, and that would be April Fool's Day. So uh -oh. I'm not sure about planning my first <laughs> meeting with the group on April Fool's Day, but uh, Gordy will be joining us as will Rick, the vice president. I was officially introduced, I think Monday, wasn't it this week, Monday? Yeah, we saw an announcement in one of the emails. So, But it was... There was um, the requisite paperwork you have to go through when you're part of a 501c3 and all that. But the job was mine beginning last week. So that's one of the things that's on my bench. So you get to let smoke out of things for, for research. Is that instead of the rest of us just blowing it up? <laughs> oh, no, those guys get to do it. I just get to sit around and report about it. Oh, very good. <laughs> they come to me and say, hey, let the smoke out, you know, and I go, okay. If you should I tell somebody? If you need help with innovative ways to do that, I know a guy. Yeah. Well, I think that's why they gave me the job. Yeah, right. That's why I recommended you. What do you think here? It's kind of, he's the Arduino king. So so what else is on your workbench that's tangible now, Larry? That's a good that thanks for taking that position, by the way. But you know, it's one of those things that may sound altruistic, but an opportunity to give back to the group. I see some really positive changes in the NMRA in the past three months. It's unbelievable the changes in the past three months. Uh, first one is being starting tomorrow, you'll be able to get a free uh, magazine online. Yeah. If you want the print one, you got to pay for it. But first year, it's part of your dues. That's a pretty good deal. You yeah. Know? Um, I spent a few, I guess about an hour with Gordy shortly after this, and he kind of talked to me about what's going on with that. But what's tangible on my bench is the 3D printers running over there. I'm hoping that the it, you don't hear it. This is my new favorite box. It doesn't sound like much, but I printed this box out. 
it's uh, I'll tell you exactly how big it is. It's four and a half inches by an inch and a half by an inch. It looks like a cigarette case or box. Of yeah, cigarettes. it's a little bit bigger than that, but it's a pin vice holder. You know how your pin vice rolls around the bench and the uh, all the drill bits roll around the bench has a great lid, but it's also got a removable lid. And I'm showing the guys as we speak that holds your drill bits in and your pin vice fits in here and it's got little magnets in it. I 3D printed this thing. It took like two hours. I've given away four of them because everybody that sees it says, oh, my God, I got to have that. So that's <laughs> one of my projects. What do you mean only four? There's like five of us on this podcast here. So. Yeah, I was thinking None the same thing. Right asked me <laughs> so, you know, I'll print them out. We, we hear it printing away over there. So my garage door is is my primary access if I got stuff in the car. So oh, okay. and there is no opener. The 65-year-old guy lifts the door. You know, your layout's not in the basement um, down I in have, Florida? It's in, it's in the basement of the garage. Yeah. <laughs> That's a Florida basement, right? Given that the basement's the first floor and the attic. Uh, you know, I have an attic up there, four and a half feet tall, and it's full of Lionel trains. That's really cool. That printed out. Yeah, because my pin vice is around here somewhere, but I think it rolled off the table. So, so the other thing I did is, and I'll show you the empty one, I uh, drew up in fusion 360 a small box it's oh i know three and a half inches by an inch deep by two and a half inches tall with two dividers in it but what i've done is i've been using the 3d printer and the software to get the shop organized one of the problems i always have is losing these darn things the micro brushes oh sure so that's my micro brush box. It's been wonderful because <laughs> like everything else, the micro brushes were in a bag and then you pull the tops off of them. This way they're there. Actually have my logo debossed on the front right here of the box. So I've been playing a lot with the 3D stuff, uh, but it's cleaned up the bench dramatically. If you saw it, you wouldn't think so, but it really has. For the guys out there, if you want to get into 3D printing times now, I mean, you can buy an Ender 3, which is a upper end of the home filament type printers. You can buy them refurbed on eBay for 135 bucks with the same warranty as a brand new one. And then there's a uh, there's about five websites I know of. I know there's more, but there's one called stlfinder.com. And, and it has a great search engine. You can literally type in Atlas Model Railroad and, and put out there free or at a low cost. It finds it. I'm very organized in many ways, like on my <laughs> folder, because it's like you type in Model Railroad and there's literally 10,000 files on it. And um, uh, uh, this, is, this might be stuff. a random question thrown at you here, Larry, but when you mentioned that it's a filament printer, uh, difference between a filament printer and a resin printer. Uh, we had Eric Boone on earlier talking about resin printers. Uh, can those STL files, or is there a transferable nature between? Does yeah, it matter it, if it's... it'll print on either one. Okay. Filament, uh, resins are better quality. The quality will be improved over what a filament is, but they're brittle. Uh, they tend to be more brittle. Most guys, what they're doing, and somebody brought this up earlier, about, oh, I think it was Tom, about the, um, our guys still going to do castings. Yes, they're going to use the 3D, the resin printer to make the original. 
And then they will do, whether it's injection molded or whatever, but they will take that to make the molds. And the reason is the, as I said, the resin tends to be brittle and breaks easy, wherein the other type does not. Now, with uh, you guys that are working between that resin now, you know, Larry, Joe, and Ken, we'll start with Larry, glue type. I, this is a common question or issue I've had. Glue type with a resin and a 3D printed part, uh, a recommended glue from, let's start with you, Larry. Uh, filament printers, it's um, acetone. Steal your wife's uh, nail polish remover. Really? Or go to really? Home Depot and buy a giant can of it. In fact, that's one of the things that you can do with it is you can make a tent with a small cup of acetone and put it over your piece. And you can do it with, with the, um, the resin printers also. If you just study three printer stuff, they show you how to make a little tent and how long to leave it in there. And all the striation lines will just disappear. Oh, really? If you've got micro rivet detail and you're not careful, guess what disappears? The rivet detail. Your rivets, yeah. But that's one thing I think a lot of times we refrain from is the banding that you see out of this 3D stuff. And the resin is a lot better. But when trying to glue, you know, a resin product with, you know, a 3D printed product. is kind of your limitation. I've been told that you can, I I don't own a resin printer. And I have glued stuff. I always used ACC. But the problem with ACC in three years, it becomes as brittle as the resin. Right. But even after, so Joe, if if you painted a, you know, a resin model and even done a 3D, you know, portions of it, do you run into that with your railroad, the brittleness after, you know, time has passed? I have not seen anything, any of that kind of problem. And I have some resin cars that were put together with ACC that are, geez, pushing 15 or 20 years old um, that are, have not, that's falling apart. Different than a 3D printed resin. Yeah. Right, right. 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 Those are two it's different resins we're talking different about. Animals. Yes. Yeah. So I have a I have a 3D printed um tank car that is uh the old frameless tank car, the first ones that UTLX made. And that has been on my railroad for probably three or four years and regular operating sessions, and it hasn't been a problem. It's that kind of that clear translucent white stuff originally yep mm-hmm. is, that the, is that the uh is the paint helping seal that in or like what's happening there that you're retaining a better quality i would assume so or longevity the, the I, paint say, is, I don't know it does uv is uv is the cure for a resin you know that's how the resin is actually printed is by using uv yeah and, uh, and so uv is also its enemy so if yeah. you can cover it that will help. So these cars that Eric printed, he gave to me and I'm uh, that he printed at the Marlers retreat and I've got them and he has sent me the underframes, but I trimmed them and then put them out in the sun. And like he's, like he said, they're, or like Larry said, they're very well cured now, but I need to get them painted. Well, that's one thing. And, and the one Joe's talking about is Eric Boone printed um, ladders Rough walk, it had all the components on it and it was all printed just in one shot. Now yep. you'll have to keep us up to speed as to how that moves forward as far as painting it and, and getting something like that onto a railroad and brittleness. Does it get not ladders knocked off? I mean, those are always the things guys are afraid of. But when it is all said and done, I mean, I've experienced it with the 3D printed stuff, I've been quite pleased with it. 
but it was neat to see Eric show on display at the modeler's retreat, the actual 3D printing of this thing. And when I looked at it, it had all the grab irons, it had all the detail, and it was coming all out as one. And the end product that he had sitting there was, I mean, it was pretty impressive. I, I get that the stuff has come a long way and we'll eventually get there that even Mike Jordan will print out his own cars. But you his have to have that, that type of, <laughs> but that type of detail to be able to see that stuff coming out that way is insane. It's just a matter of how durable will it be in even Delary's point. Yeah, right. And yeah. the filament, the filament tends to be more durable. Okay, there are yeah. filament printers that will print at that resin quality, but they're not in the home market. They're typically two to three thousand dollars. You know, and they'll have a much bigger bed, you know. I think Gazer can afford one of those. I, I, I can afford two, I think. So no, I think he's gonna, no, 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 no. Tom's going to try to figure out how to do it on his Cricut. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm going to Cricut. I don't need a 3D printer. I got a Cricut. So yeah. back to our little logistics things. And I, I have so many 3D printed questions. We need a whole podcast on that. And I'll go to you, Mike. We started out this podcast. Uh, Ken and Larry went there talking about logistics on working on these projects A to Z. And I know William and I do videos and sometimes that moves the project along because I want to complete the video or I want to complete an article or, you know, like Larry, I got to complete this for the NMRA. What are some things you do to stay, I'll say on topic or on that project so it doesn't languish along the way? Do you have an end game when you start something? And we'll go around the room and we'll end it with this. We'll start with you, Mike. Things will just pop up on my desk that are going to be my next project. I'll start the project because I've got glue tubs full of stuff that I can use to complete the project. Uh, my biggest problem is, is that uh, I'm impatient to let glue dry. Hopefully, I get to a point where I can set it aside. I make a mental list of things that I've got to get. And then when I'm driving by the hobby store, I walk in with uh, my mental list and get what I need, plus that shiny new locomotive and a couple boxcars. And then uh, the glue's dry, and then I go to the next step. Process is, this is more of a hobby than a deadline. So my deadline's tend to creep on me. Sometimes I'll set up a operating session just so I have a deadline and get some of this stuff off my desk. Yeah, I think operation sessions and visitors coming make a great deadline if you're not writing an article or uh, creating a video. And Ken Zeska, I'll go to you next. What's going to keep you moving along on this uh, Milwaukee Ribside Boxcar Project? Well, right now, uh, I got one of the first ones and I wanted to have it partially done for the modelers meet. Now I want to have it complete so that I can show other people that are just now getting their kits that it can be done. And I also want to have it for the Thousand Lakes region convention and then the national S scale convention. So I really want that thing done and, and off my bench. Now, it's at a point now where I, I'm going to set it aside because when I brought it to the modelers meet, we looked inside the box of little tiny parts and now the box of little tiny parts is missing a, b a bunch of little tiny parts. That's not a big deal. So I'll set it aside and 
and get on to something else for a while. And then when the, when the parts come in, then I'll finish it up. But gosh, then, then the problem is what do I go to next? You know, how do I choose the next one? Cause there's so many to do. How do you choose? Well, I think what it's going to come down to is, uh, is I'm going to say, Hey guys, uh, I'm going to be here Saturday morning and I'll have coffee and tea and donuts here and come on by and, and, uh, spin the knob for a while. And I know that I've got some electrical electronics things and I'm, I'm going to just reach out and find somebody that can help. You know, I, William, you, you've mentioned a couple of times, gosh, you know, just dig in and you learn it yourself. And, and that's nice, but there's so many things to learn. And, and I know that if I spend three hours learning it, I'll forget it in three weeks anyway. So that is true. I think redundancy a lot of times, if you're doing it enough, like Larry, he does it all the time. So he remembers yep. it. But yep. yeah, like you say, doing it over and over and even learning a new skill, there's sometimes you bring in an expert to be able to get it done in an expert's amount of time, not not right. a half a day and be frustrated. Right. Now, I've, I've been able to do some operating lately. And so I've made some really neat notes that I want to try out. But I still need now to have some people, somebody else come in and spin a knob and try things and say, hey, you know, this works or this is kind of goofy. So. It'll probably be something to do with the getting the layout running and, and running a couple op sessions. I, I believe that'll be my next priority. If you're not going to do, you know, I like the redundancy thing because I learned when I keep doing things over and over. I I broke out a notebook, you know, when I talked to Larry about DCC or this podcast or thing. What do you guys use to remind you to go back and change what CV or what paint did you use? Do you guys have notes at all on this? Joe, what do you use? Um, I have a notepad that's official MNCNL stationery from 1950-whatever. So if I'm going to use notes, that sits next to my workbench, and that's what I'll use. But I try and keep track of the, thing, the things mentally, which is you know fraught with danger. But <laughs> <laughs> I've been reasonably successful. Uh, and so you know I have a mental... I can look at the boxes that I need to get done for projects for other people. And I know what I need to do that when I'm working on stuff, but I have a list of stuff I want to take, get from the hobby shop. And that's just, I guess I make lists mental or otherwise. Mental or otherwise. Larry, when you're doing a project, do you like assembling all the items at one time? So, you know, you have them before you can go from A to Z or do you work on it as you get things? Yes. Yes. <laughs> if I if I'm working on a project, I want everything a new project. I want everything that I think I need available to me because once you start the thought process in programming and electronics assembly, it's hard to go back to what you were thinking two months ago. In fact, somebody asked me the other day, "How did you come up with this in the code on this?" And I said, "Yeah, okay." You know, I just couldn't remember. Yeah. Uh, now I, I I document my code so much that all I had to do was look at the notes, and I know where my thought processes were. But uh, just to try and remember it, you can't do it. You've got to you got to write it down. You've got to keep it up that way. So and uh, well, Larry, that's huge though. I think across the board, electronics period to be able to go back in and try to re relearn or remember. I mean, JMRI is what we use for not a switch list, but 
Um, how do you go about even coding some of the stuff as far as under a railroad? What do you recommend for a guy that is wiring something? Because that is huge to go back and look at it again and retrace it. My piece of advice for everybody that's wiring their layout for the first time is develop an organized structure. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you've got four boosters and use red and black for the track wires and at each terminal block where you're doing them, mark down what block it is. That way, you know at a glance, that's block number three, block number four, block one, whatever. The other is, don't just wire it up with wire that Billy Bob had in his basement from Bell Telephone 35 years ago. The colors are never the same. Now, if you can get 200 feet of red, of uh, say orange and purple, and you want to make that your lighting bus, perfect. Take the brightest color, make it positive. In other words, that's what I do is a positive is bright, negative is dark. That's why if I got orange and purple, orange is the brightest color. It's going to be my positive lead. I can look at a glance and don't even have to think about it. I like that. That's nice. Yeah, that's, a, that's a pro tip right there. We're going to have to turn on the central Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, I don't, don't look under my layers either. In other words, if orange and purple are my lighting bus, they are my entire lighting bus. I'm that way even to the lights, the wires that go into a building. So if you're underneath looking, you can do it. The other piece of advice I would give is you're going to, we're going to get comments on it. I really don't care. This is my opinion. Okay. Scotch lock connectors, suitcase connectors are verboten on no, my way. No, no. Hate them. <laughs> and, and not for the reason you think. It's been well documented. They come loose. And yeah, you can just crimp them down again. But if you take those wires and you run them out to a terminal strip on the outer edge of your layout, you don't have to crawl under there. If you've got some kind of a weird short in the turnout, you can pull wires off of a terminal strip in the front. Try to pull the scotch lock connectors off. Can't do it. It's, it's more about troubleshooting. And guess what the difference in cost is? Zero. It's actually a little cheaper to do it my way. And the older you get, the, and trust me, I'm not a spring chicken. I appreciate the fact that all my wires come out to the front of my layout. You know why? I don't have to crawl under there to figure out what's going on. It's right in front of me. And you put a piece of fascia on that's removable. It's invisible, but keep it organized, keep it neat. Those are huge deals. All right. So all your suitcase connectors, your hate mail is creaky chair models. <laughs> crawling under the layout is how I get my exercise. Yeah, don't uh, send it to TCD NMR. No, okay. no, I agree with you, Larry. That's a that's a good point. And then no, I, my point is you can do whatever you want. It's right. your yeah. layout. Right. You know. It's my, as I said, it's my opinion. And after 50 years of working on electronics, I, I know a couple of things. You, you know, know you, yeah, passing it on. We appreciate that. And William, we'll go to you last. Does having a YouTube channel making these episodes and series push you to completion, knowing that viewers want to see the end of this great Northern passenger car or what happens to this SW 1200? Or does that distract you from what you kind of want to work on? Well, if you watch any of the videos, they're all over the board in general. So I do jump around a lot. 
And with that, I mean, it does help me get stuff done because I do look at projects and, and kind of itemize them and say, I'd like to get it done by the end of this season. So I do stack stuff up and I try to work through it. And a lot of times people will ask, well, why don't you work more on the railroad? Why don't you do ballasting? Why don't you get into scenery? Why don't you get into structures? And I mean, that's the jumping all over element that can happen. And I, I, I hear people say comments and then a lot of times I, I do jump over to it and I start working on an elevator. And the next thing you know, I'm like, what am I working on the elevator right now? I need, I need to focus on the track work and getting the servos throwing right. And I fortunately had Dave and Joe come out and uh, even Dan come out and run the sink, run the railroad through its paces as Ken kind of alluded to is, is the old knob twisting helps people show you areas and issues you might have, because if you're by yourself and the engine stalls, you're not afraid to just give it a nudge. Joe kind of commented and said, well, I don't want to just touch the engine. It's nicely detailed. So uh, it stalled here and it did a couple of times in one spot and I was aware of that area, but addressing those things and the, the YouTube channel itself, I mean, I'm showing you kind of what I'm doing. I'm not really diving into a slower step-by-step. Step. I, I know, Tom, you've weathered some freight cars and stuff and you slow down and more drawn out and take five minutes and look at it. And I'll try to do it in two minutes just to kind of give people the gist of what's going on. And kind of like Larry said, it, these are just opinions. I'm just sharing what I'm doing in terms of the, the technique, the process, it gives you an idea of what's happening and it's not just the bare bones. This is how it happens. And it's going to take you 45 minutes to see it. But otherwise, as far as my projects are concerned on my railroad, I look at them. It's like the uh, Kenworth semi that was last night, just out of the blue. I thought I'm going to put the antennas and the mirrors on it. And then I end up putting the black on the, on the wheels and start to detail it up. Um, that's just a total tangent project. And my dad and I kind of joke every once in a while, if, if we're working on the GN in 1970 and he's disappeared for some reason and he's gone, I'll just say tangent and he'll go <laughs> tangent because he's on a tangent and I'm guilty of it as well. We both will go off on tangents and it's like, what are you farting around with? And it's like, well, I was putting these little people together to be able to put them in front of this little module or stand them next to this, this vehicle tangents pop up a lot, but I think a lot of times when we as modelers are trying to focus on stuff to do, it's really gravitating towards stuff that you want to do. Ken mentions his 40 foot box car. He's going to finish that and then he's going to move on to something else. I tend to a lot of times focus on going through a project, get about 75% done. And then I move over to the other 68% finished project and try to nudge it along. So mine's always nudging it along, but learning from guys, I think is a big part of it. Larry mentioning how to color code stuff. That's huge. I go into the GN in 1970 and to look into an existing railroad. Colin is a master electrician. He's the one that did our wiring. It's all labeled. And I always say anybody that looks under the hood of the GN in 1970, if you see any wires that are out of place, that's my work. If it's not labeled, <laughs> that was me. I was trying to get stuff together and get stuff working. And when, when we're at, um, you know, the GN 1970, we're listening to a podcast and we're really kind of bouncing around trying to knock off uh, certain checklists. Uh, we had you guys out and ran an operating session. And after that operating session, there were some notes that were left behind. Um, it took me about seven seconds, Tom, to fix the opposing switches. There were two turnouts we had that weren't throwing correctly. I plugged in that uh, that handy little programmer Joe that you had been or you had borrowed. It was a Tam Valley little programmer. I need two that button back, pushes. Two button pushes. <laughs> that and, was and it, huh? That was it. No. That and was my Zeta's back in business. Okay. So, yeah, I need that back. By the way. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, it's a good thing I have a second one. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> 
but as far as projects on, on my railroad, and I think all of us collectively can agree that we all look at each thing that draws our interest to it, but our skill levels are in so many different areas that we kind of gravitate, I think, towards our skill level. And when we do that, we end up in a position that in Ken's case, he's working on a resin kit. Joe, I know you're working on the C415 and we all kind of gravitate to those things that we enjoy. And I think that's where it is at the end of the day. I do the videos. I enjoy putting those videos together. I do it for you guys to kind of see that there are a lot of things that you can do on your railroad, share different products that are out there and things that we're doing. Um, But it's a conversation even like this with you guys is to be able to kind of BS kick ideas around and learn from one another. So if I'm, if I'm frustrated with the project, I'll turn to one of you and see if I can find a result. I like it. I think, I think that that's a lot of good advice from everybody that your desire and enthusiasm will carry you through. And then also, you know, like Ken says, you want things done for the convention or the show or the video or to reply to someone else. So I think we'll wrap it up. What's on your workbench and a little logistics there. And I thank you guys for your input and we'll, I guess we'll all say good night. So good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night, friends. Good night. All right, here's a promotion coming at you for the gripe of the pod. I'm a little concerned about the printed media with magazines and the newspapers that are out there and how some of my favorite things are getting what they call archived. And (laughs) archived means that they're putting stuff into storage and it might not ever be seen again. I'm just concerned if they're going to archive my magazines, they might archive me. And when it really comes down to it, I really love my printed material, so I hope that doesn't happen. And that's the curmudgeon's gripe of the pod. Well, it's kind of funny that I was listening to someone else's podcast, believe that or not. What? I think he's got me on block now. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, no, I, can, I can sneak that in for you. I won't tell him it's you, so really, yeah. it's either there or it's not. And this is the one weirdo that's concerned that it's it's missing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to create an interlock. No. Oh boy, where were you two years ago? <laughs> You've been listening to the Crossing Game, the official podcast of the Twin Cities Division. You can find us on Facebook in our group, the Twin Cities Division of the NMRA. You can email us at tcdnmra at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe for future podcasts.